Because as a people leader, you're responsible for the people function, but you're also responsible for the organization. And an M&A has a huge impact on your organization. This is the People Masterminds podcast with leading voices on people, culture, and organizational challenges in scale-ups. Welcome to the People Masterminds podcast. The potential impact of the people team in driving business transformations during mergers and acquisitions is frequently overlooked or underutilized. Navigating complex mergers can be quite a challenge. We have Ness Bai with us in the studio today. She is a specialist on post-merger HR integrations. If you face this challenge, you'd better make sure you're ready for it. We are Crystal and Evelise, and we can't wait to discuss this topic with you. I have quite some M&A experience myself, and I totally agree that handling this well is critical for future company success. Thank you for tuning in again. And if you enjoy our podcast, remember to hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. And of course, we always appreciate your feedback. So send us your ideas for topics, tips, tricks, or any other feedback that you'd like to share with us. Send a DM via LinkedIn or email info at peoplemasterminds.com. Now let's introduce today's guest and dive into the discussion. Welcome to the show, Ness. (laughs) Thank you. So happy to be here. And Crystal will try to sum you up in just a couple of sentences. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> Ness is a seasoned people leader, has ton of M&A experience and was the VP people at Kepler. Recently, she started her own business, NS People, where she's focusing on driving business transformations. Ness loves fast cars and enjoys watching the Formula One. Well, we can shake hands here. Mm-hmm. In her own fast car, she has a sports car mode that she often uses to go from zero to 100 kilometers per hour in no time. She seems to be impatient and stands as a lion for her team. And she never settles for less, as she always strives for high quality results. Fast girl. Oh, man, <laughs> I think I know who you got this from. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and I forgot to mention one thing. When people heard about your new business, they said, break a leg. But you took that too literally, right? Yeah, I think I, a few days later, I literally broke my leg. So thank you, people, for your positive thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you were planning to uh, to come over to the studio, but um, this is a remote call, which yes. and it works perfectly fine, of course, but... We'll make up. We'll make up for it, for sure. Yeah, well, take care. Let's start with a very basic question, just to make sure that everyone understands what we're talking about. Ness, what is a merger and what is an acquisition? Um, Yeah, so if we would explain it uh, simplistically, an acquisition occurs when one company purchases another company's assets or shares, gaining control over it. So basically, the acquiring company gains access to the target company's assets, talent pool, and intellectual capital. And companies usually will acquire other firms to either expand, you know, market presence, acquire new technologies, increase efficiency, or simply to eliminate competition. Um, Mergers, um, I've seen them happen less frequently than you would see acquisitions taking place, but a merger actually happens when 
uh, two companies or more decide to join forces. So they both agree to unite, pooling their resources, talent, uh, operational capabilities, and companies often merge to either achieve synergies, reduce costs, or expand into new markets, or just use each other's complementary strengths and offer something stronger to the market. And once I was also involved in a carve-out, could you explain mm-hmm. a bit more about that, what it is? Yeah, so a carve-out is actually when an organization decides to separate a part of its business unit or a division um, and allowing it to operate independently. So this kind of carve-out entity becomes its own distinct company with its own objectives and autonomy. And the purpose is often to really make sure that, you know, to unlock the unit's value and align it more closely with maybe specific market demands, provide a clearer path for investors to assess, you know, the performance of that separate division. Um, Yep, so that would be it. And um, you worked in a more corporate environment and for a scale-up environment, and you were involved in M&As in both companies or several companies. What is the difference in your opinion if you compare the corporate environment with the scale-up environment. She starts smiling, so that's the <laughs> telling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think apart from, you know, like the obvious differences that larger companies, you know, often have more extensive budgets, uh, dedicated teams to conduct M&A uh, than scale-ups. The main differences, I would say, in my experience were, were three things. I think one was how integration is managed, leadership, and then effective communication. So on how integration is managed, when a large organization acquires a small to medium-sized business, that company that has been acquired will likely have to adapt and integrate into the existing operating procedures, uh, policy structures of that larger company, right? With very little room for a personalized approach. Um, Organizations that are scaling are still often still kind of playing catch up and are still in the process of, you know, defining their operating procedures, ways of working systems uh, to keep up with their own growth rates, which can make it pretty challenging to define an integration plan, especially since the processes of what the acquirer had may not be the best option for the newly formed Mm -hmm. company. For example, when a scale-up acquires another company small to medium size, it often puts the newly formed company into a new headcount number that requires very different processes. For example, when Kepler, at the time, 220 employees acquired Marine Traffic and Fleetmon, the total number of the entire organization went to 500 plus overnight. So what worked for Kepler at 220 was not going to work for 500 plus. So it created a unique opportunity to kind of reassess everything and decide taking the best of both worlds and sometimes taking neither options of either company and kind of going for a third option, which in my opinion, made it easier for integration purposes because there was no bias of like, oh, we all have to adapt to company A. Yeah. Like it was really, we're deciding together more of equal. what makes sense. Yeah, more equal. Even mm. if it was in an acquisition context. And, and which of the two did you like better? Um, I think I don't have a specific preference. If the, lar- obviously I think I was lucky that the larger company I worked for was really good. Like they were very efficient in their processes. They were very quick. So it was not a negative thing having to adapt to it. But I also worked for another company that was 
more, you know, your typical large company, very bureaucratic. And I think in that respect, it would have been less favorable. So um, I still love the scale-up environment just because you can get to be more creative. It's a bit more high intensity, but yeah, equally, they both have Mm. different challenges. And what's the difference then in leadership and communication? Um, So I think in leadership, you know, in larger, more established organization, there tends to be yeah, more senior leadership experience in general. So it, yeah. it's more mature organization structure, mm-hmm. which means that you have more skills in navigating uncertainty, supporting people's through, you know, periods of change. Um, in scale-ups, while, you know, I don't want to generalize, but in, in general, you would have fewer leaders with very extensive experience in that company, which yeah, means that true. that skill of change management, leading through change and uncertainty is not always very present. And I think as, you know, leadership team or people leader, it's very important to then kind of invest even more in your people leaders at that time to make sure that they're equipped in kind of dealing through that period. Clear. According to Harvard Business Review um, and a lot of studies, between 70 and 90% of all acquisitions fail. So apparently there's work to do. Um, What in your opinion and from your experience are the big phases that a company goes through during an M&A? Okay, so M&A or the entire process of a deal is highly complex, right? So I think if any companies going through this, I would definitely recommend to work with experts to support you through this. But if you kind of look at it from big lines, you have the very early stages, which is the company deciding, why do we want to buy other companies? Like, why do we want to have um, inorganic growth? Uh, Assessing potential target companies and partners, you know, basically doing a preliminary market research and start targeting potential companies that you want to start discussing things with. If things then evolve and, you know, there seems to be a match, you kind of take things more um, concrete and you move into due diligence phase. During due diligence, it's basically a very short period where you work very long hours. (laughs) (laughs) Also a fun period, an exciting period. Yeah, we're going to deep dive into that later, right? Because I want to know more about it. (laughs) Correct. But you're basically kind of doing a full audit of the company that you're you're interested in, whether that's like legal, financials, uh, kind of looking under or behind the curtain of of what they've been sharing. As far as Um, possible. Reveal the secrets. Yeah, as far as possible. (laughs) Correct. Um, And then once that's completed, and sometimes this happens in parallel, but then you have like everything that's related to negotiating and defining your deal structure. So, you know, negotiating terms of your deal, uh, things like price, payment structures. And I think the most important step is drafting and finalizing your LOE or letter of intent. Um, And then it kind of goes a bit Yeah, into very legal stuff. So making sure you have all the legal approvals, uh, that you're complying with antitrust laws. And you have a lot of experts that kind of do all of this for you. Uh, But there again, the objective is to kind of move to um, an SPA or sales purchase agreement. Um, That's a major milestone. Um, And then you kind of go into integration planning, but more like high-level integration planning, day one, communication. So starting to kind of get ready behind um, that step. And then um, you kind of move into closing 
um, the deal, which involves like signing final documents, uh, making sure all conditions are met. And then hopefully if everything goes well, um, you can Because you never know world. until like the last minute. I know. And Will I've this be a deal or not? Exactly. And not every due diligence actually results in a closed deal. Like I've worked on so many projects where even after all the long hours and all the hard work, the yeah. deal didn't get through and yeah. it can go over very small things. And I think that's the exciting part about mm -hmm. it. It's, it's kind of exciting until the very end. You don't know until it's really signed. Yeah, yeah. Um, true. And then the hard work starts. <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. And then the real work starts. <laughs> then the real work starts. I know, but like surprisingly enough, you see so many companies investing a lot of money and effort into the pre-deal or the pre-close phase. But yeah. then once the deal is closed, it's like, okay, we've done it. Yeah. And you you kind of see a bit yeah. the attention and efforts and stuff. Well, reducing yes. a little bit in yeah. compared to before. Yeah, and they're so focused on the first phase, getting that deal in that they sort of forget to pay attention to, okay, but what if we if, if we're able to close this deal? Yeah, making what will be deal. next? Yeah, yeah exactly. making it successful. Yeah. yeah. And for me, the key to success is making sure you think about what's next before your deal is closed. This podcast is powered by Personio helping you to remove complexities from core HR processes so you can focus on what really matters, your people. Visit personio.nl forward slash people masterminds for more information. When talking about mergers and, and acquisitions and the whole preparation and the due diligence, etc., who should be involved and when should you involve them? Mm -hmm. So when it comes to, you know, this entire process, we actually talk about two teams, the deal team and the integration team. So your deal team, as the word says, is primarily responsible for everything that happens before close. So they identify, evaluate, negotiate, you know, all the steps I've just explained uh, before. And the type of roles you would typically see in that team would be, you know, your corporate development or BD team, which is the team that you know, it's kind of like the driving force behind identifying potential acquisition targets. You'd have legal and compliance experts like lawyers specialized in M&A, um, you know, financial experts such as investment bankers, financial analysts that, you know, look at the financial aspects of the deal. Um, negotiators in some cases, um, you know, people that are you know, there to negotiate the terms of the acquisition, including purchase price, payment, your due diligence team, uh, which we talked about, that will be responsible of, uh, which is a, usually a more extensive team because it represents a lot of the functions. Yeah. And then most importantly, also executive, you know, senior executives yeah. and decision makers are often involved. So, you know, once the deal team kind of successfully negotiates and finalizes the terms of the acquisition, it's really important that there is a proper handover to the integration team, hmm. um, which is not always as, it doesn't always happen in reality. It kind of flows a bit inorganically and people usually start getting added and added. But in an ideal world, you would really have like a closing of the deal team and then a, a, an official onboarding to, yeah. the, to the integration team. Looking at the integration team, in an ideal world, you know, as I said before, they would start preparing uh, before it's announced so that they can start yeah. looking at day one and <clears throat> communications. And there I have seen 
you know, different team structures. It really depends also a bit on the company culture. Like, is it very pragmatic or is it very process oriented and large? But I think as a rule of thumb, what I would recommend having in an integration team is you have your sponsor, which is often, you know, a CEO, a founder. Um, You have a steering committee, which is your leadership team and who's kind of like in the end accountable uh, for, for the integration, but can also help like decide on, you know, when there's conflict between integration and and BAU priorities. Yeah. And ideally, you'd have an integration director. Uh, Basically, someone who's a bit the program manager of of the entire process. Um, I have seen, you know, individuals do this, you know, with just external people, um, people that are internally that are fully dedicated to this. But in a lot of cases, a lot of people do it just on top of their job. And you have someone who's a top talent that you want to give a stretch assignment and they're the ones taking on that role. Um, and then underneath that, you have your work streams. Yeah. So work stream lead, work stream team who kind of represent almost every function you have in, in the organization. And in an ideal world, you would have a diverse team, which is has yeah. people from company A and, and company B. But there again, I think it really depends a bit on on the company, on the scale of how large or how small these teams are. Mm-hmm. Is the people and culture team always involved in, uh, or should the people and culture team be involved in a deal team? Yes, definitely. I mean, Why? in my opinion, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so whoever's listening out there. <laughs> yeah, because often I was involved, but I also know about yeah. a lot of companies who don't involve there are people in no, culture team. You, you received a message. Hey, we acquired a company. Can yeah. you do the integration, please? Yeah. I know. Or can you fill in some details? Yeah. yeah. Which is insane, right? Especially if yeah. you think like the, the people aspect is so crucial and it's the reason why a lot of acquisitions fail. Um, but for me, yes, the HR leader, not the entire people function, but the people leader, whether that's your global leader or local leader, depending on, you know, where the acquisition is taking place should be consulted even at step one. Like I was involved as early as, you know, targeting of companies just to kind of get my initial, you know, feedback, due diligence, day one planning, integration. Because as a people leader, you're responsible for the people function, but you're also responsible for the organization. And, you know, an M&A has a huge impact on your organization. Mm -hmm. So making sure that your people leader is involved is is definitely important. And I can share a lot more benefits for, <laughs> you know, the, the business leaders on why they should involve them. So I, I can list them if you want, but... Uh, so at yeah. least at a very early stage, ideally. Yes. From yes. the deal team stage, not yes. just, the not just the integration stage. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do the due diligence as a people leader, what do you look at? So during a due diligence, you get access to a virtual data room um, where the target company uploads all the information for you to review and and assess. And if you're lucky, you can get a few expert sessions with with the target company. But (laughs) if if you're you're lucky, lucky. (laughs) if you're lucky. (laughs) But what I always look at is what is not there, Hmm. then what is there. Um, For example, they will often include standard employment contracts in the Mm -hmm. data room. But then you would see in the employee data file that they have freelancers and interns and part-time employees. And you'll be like, okay, so where are the contracts for those people? Um, So I think in short, you would ask yourself, what are the things you would expect a company of that size to have and see if it is made available? And if not, you would request it through 
an information request list uh, yeah. to, to get that information. Um, do you want me to go through all the things I do look at? Yeah, please. <laughs> please, talk us through it. <laughs> so it's a very long list. No, but just, just mention important topics. We would yeah. love to hear that. Yeah. So I think um, if I can bucket it maybe in, in big groups, um, company organization structure. So mapping out how the organization is currently structured, roles and responsibilities, you know, try to understand, um, assess competency and effectiveness of their leadership and management, which is very crucial. Um, then looking at your people function in itself and understanding, you know, the full cycle. What are they do? Compensation, contract reviews, uh, learning and development. Just think about a f- people function and just kind of check through all those boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also extremely important is understanding top executives. Like, I think that's a piece sometimes gets forget forgotten because people don't like to share their salaries or their compensation, especially not, mm-hmm. you know, the senior executives of the acquired company, making sure you get those contracts and those pays of the founders, of the senior leadership team, um, because what they will do post the deal and the compensation that goes with it are very crucial elements. And it's important to get those negotiations done before you sign the deal because there can be a bit of a bottleneck uh, sometimes. And also ask for, are there any ongoing uh, claims? Um, Are there potential claims? Uh, Are there union labor relations? Just anything that could kind of jeopardize your deal or could cause... um, potential challenges post um, the deal close. Mm -hmm. So in total, I think there's like 20 elements (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you have to look at and and review. You're not always going to get all the information. So sometimes it's just taking a a calculated guess of what the risk could be. Is there a specific data you look at? Of course, you have like the default data, like absence, uh, attrition rate, maybe revenue per employee, things like that. Are there any specific numbers you look at? Um, so I think, yeah, the the numbers are good to just kind of get a good understanding of the footprint of that organization, but they're not going to define whether you're going to move forward with the deal or not. Hmm. It's just good to, to be aware of what is going to decide if you're going to move forward will be, are they compliant? Are they doing all the payroll correct? Do we have tax liabilities? Uh, what is the total cost? How much is it going to cost us to harmonize benefits? How much would synergies be? So what the business wants to see is more the business case of the people part and the liabilities that could come with it because that will be then things that they will include in the agreement to to make sure that they're protected. Um, so I just look at the numbers usually and and make sure that what what's always very helpful to me is culture is very hard to understand if you're just looking at a data room. Mm. So I often see how people write policies and like it tells you quite a lot about how that company operates. Like. I'm working on a deal right now where I'm doing the due diligence and we have very limited information, but just by how the policies are written, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, this is very much command and control organization. So this could potentially be a cultural clash. And so that those are very important things to look at during the meeting. 
Do you also look online, for example, Glassdoor reviews or to understand culture better? Yeah, because there are so Mm -hmm. many online resources now that we can use, right? Yes. From the people and culture angle, while you're doing your assessment using the data in the data room, what are potential red flags? So for me, red flags are, as I said, lack of information. So if there's a lot of things that should be there and are not there, um, for me, the biggest red flag I have, for example, this specific case is really the culture because Mm -hmm. it's so completely different than this company that is going to acquire them. And Mm -hmm. in that large corporation I worked for before, I have seen them pull out of deals because of culture fit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's nothing in particular, Lisa. So culture is your main? Culture and leadership. And leadership, of course. Yeah. 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 And what are common oversights that can lead to uh, later complications, do you think? Um, In the due diligence phase, you mean? Yeah. Uh, I think just doing it too quickly and not thorough enough. Look, in reality, a lot of things can be fixed after a deal close, right? Um, It's just going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, So I think from a people perspective, it's so important to make sure that you review that there's no, um, you know, permanent establishment, that, you know, that there's compliance because those are the highest risk that can be very expensive. Um, culture, it's it's really hard, but that's yeah. a strategic decision of a company to proceed or not proceed regardless yeah. of that red flag. But the only things I would say that could go wrong is liabilities or risks not being flagged properly. Yeah. Um, early enough. Yeah, and and that remark was spot on because often it's due to the speed or the limited information. And often due diligences are compared to business speed dating because you are dating, but you are in in a lot of hurry and you have very limited time and you need to have that first impression ready. But again, it's not a 100% guarantee. Yeah, definitely not. And it all depends on how much information is made available to you. And so that's why they're usually quite intense days because you try to get as much information as you can through all the sources to limit the liabilities for the company. But yeah, it's not airtight. No. And we also talked a little bit about communication. How to communicate during a merger and acquisition? And I mean, during the deal phase, but also during the integration. So after the deal is closed, what do you do towards the organization because it's an extremely busy phase when you're still in the in the deal closing part everybody in the company knows something is going on <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do regarding communication in both companies and after deals closed yeah communication is like a million dollar question yeah um, <laughs> yeah i don't think anybody recipe. gets it right yeah. it's, yeah. it's the what, most what can we improve in this company <laughs> communication <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Um, but actually coming back to like the differences between scale-ups and large corporations, in large corporations, nobody would talk about anything until the deal is closed. Unless you're in the deal team, hmm. your lips are sealed. Like you sign NDAs, especially if it's a, a company that's on, it's a, p- a public company, like on the stock market, like any news that could go out could have tremendous impacts on, you know, the valuation of your company. So there is like very secretive, um, and so, yeah, you, you don't share information or you don't include people in, unless they have to do something for you. Yeah. In scale-ups, <laughs> they just share it. Oh, we're thinking about this company. <laughs> Even or, with the names? About, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, not oh. that level, but I think, yeah. It's, it's a lot of it's, trust. 
and it's ignorance exactly. probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we, we didn't talk about it earlier about the effective communication, but in scale-ups, there's this, you know, let's be open, let's be transparent. But when it comes to things like this, it can actually work contraproductive yeah, and create it can a hurt lot the of deal. issues. Yeah. It can hurt the deal, but it can also make the period post the deal extremely difficult. Um, and I can elaborate more on that if you want, but... Um, <laughs> but what so, should you do then? What should you do post-acquisition? Yeah, what and when? Yeah. yeah. So in my opinion, I think until the deal is signed, limit it to the need to know only group as much as possible. Um, obviously, your team will get bigger and bigger. Like due diligence team will start ex- expanding. Um, but then when it comes to, you know, once you get ready for day one and beyond that, and I'll just talk about internal comms because I'm not a, I, I, yeah, external communication. I'm no, not. And let's focus yeah. on internal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, internal. Um, what I would recommend is make sure that your entire leadership is informed Um, before anything gets announced. Uh, Because often that step is not always taking place and not everybody in your leadership team will often be included in the deal team. Um, So just really making sure that that team, you know, can speak with one voice, understand the rationale, and honestly just have gone through the change curve um, because not everybody in your team will probably be super excited with the news. So you need to kind of give them time to digest the news before they have to show up in front of their people. Um, what I would often see or do myself would be uh, separate communication. So the target company sending an email to their own employees and then the acquirer sharing an email to their own employees and then inviting people to join a town hall. So usually, especially if you have different time zones, yeah. different geographies, that's often you know the easiest way to do it. Um, you don't have a series of town halls. Um, I think there, again, depends a bit on the culture of the organizations. I have seen, you know, companies that would do just one big town hall for everybody uh, of all the acquired, you know, acquirer, acquired company. Um, My approach would be initially to do separate because that will allow you to target your messaging in a different way. And what I actually love doing is, but it's not always practically possible, is to do a roadshow. So especially if it's yeah. an acquisition in different locations. Yeah. Especially if you can't do the announcement in person, hi, we acquired you, yeah. then, would, then it would be amazing if you could do the roadshow. Yeah, that's a great yes. suggestion. And there again, there's pros and cons because some people say you should do it on day one and others say, no, do it in a couple of weeks because we, you know, within the first month because often the first reaction is shock. And if you do it in a couple of weeks, then people have had time to digest. They may have more questions. So see, so I think there again, it's really about understanding the culture and assessing what would be the best timing for that company. Like there's just no, yeah, right no. Or, or wrong. But the road shows help because people trust people. They don't trust corporate slides. No. Like, no. <laughs> you, can, you can give people all the strategic rationale and all the reassurance nice in quote. the end. <laughs> <laughs> people trust people, not corporate slides. <laughs> and <laughs> and you're bringing it back again to culture and leadership, huh? Because those two words are the key words in this whole process. Now, we always ask our listeners if they have a question and we also Ooh. have a question for you. Um, it's a question from Abdel from London. And he asks... M&As often lead to employee uncertainty, stress and turnover. What are some strategies that you've used to retain critical talent during these periods? It's a very good question. Um, 
all the things I've talked about up until this point will help you make sure that you keep people right. Like ensuring you prepare well, you have a clear plan, your communication is is important. Uh, all of those things will help. Um, coming to the communication first, I think the biggest enemy, I would say, um, of the period post the announcement is gossip, mm-hmm. wrong information being shared. Um, people will often, if someone from you know the acquire company will say, hey, people will take that for truth, even if that may not be the full truth. So having a source of truth uh, that people know, okay, anything that's being decided will come through that has an important impact on how people feel um, about stress, you know, uncertainty. Um, so that will help, I think, everybody. Yeah. If you look at really individuals, for me, the most basic way is managers having the conversations with people in their team, like one-on-one, like, hey, how are you feeling about this? Because each person will react differently yeah. to it. Some people will be excited, others will be anxious. And, you know, if it's definitely someone you don't want to lose, just hearing from your manager, like, hey, I really see you part of this story. You know, we're going to get, like just having that human one-on-one connection can already make, you know, a huge impact. If you don't want to look at like corporate, like global things that you could do as a company, there's things like retention bonuses and, you know, equity and Mm -hmm. all of those things. But for me, they're, if people really want to leave, they're not going to stay for their retention bonus. Like, no, I agree. Let's be honest, like, <laughs> um, but it's sometimes just And it wouldn't easier. be a good reason to stay, right? Just because of the money. Correct. So I'm, I'm always favoring more, you know, communicate well, have good people managers, be there for your team, take this seriously, put effort into doing the integration actually as quickly as you can, because that will shorten the period of uncertainty. Yeah. Like all these practices will make sure that that will reduce it. You're not going to remove it completely. And... I think also being transparent about it when you hire people like, hey, we're a company that's going to change a lot. We want to grow organically, but also through M&A, this is the environment you're going to find yourself in. You know, also looking for people that feel comfortable in that environment when you hire them. Yeah. Well, expectation management as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Great tips. And um, we also discussed that the integration part is crucial. And I think we can make a completely separate podcast about how to <laughs> yeah. do such an integration. But what are a couple of important topics in an integration plan from a people and culture perspective? What do you do on day one and after that? Uh-huh. So as I said before, I, I tried to, well, I do a high level integration plan before the deal is closed, um, which will include what is going to be my day one structure and we is for the whole company. Like what is going to happen with the CEO? Because it's so important to have rule, like roles and responsibilities clear and a yeah. chain of, not command, but just so people know, okay, if I need approval for this, who do I need to go to? So making sure that the company can still operate on day one from all practical aspects needs to happen um, as, as early as, as possible. And that's hiring approvals, you know, promotions, you know, all of these practical things on top of like communication town halls and all of that. If you then look at your actual integration plan, there's two big buckets. For me, it's like integration of the people function and then the organization. Yeah. Uh, organization being, when do we want to, do we want to integrate the teams? What's the timeline? Kind of supporting that whole org design. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything that's from a 
organizational level perspective, and then the people function, which you can use the due diligence again, uh, all the elements you've looked at to say, okay, performance management, company A does this, company B does this, company future make decisions. So basically start making decisions on how you want to proceed, but you're kind of going through the whole people yeah, roadmap yeah. And, and, and deciding for each small element um, what the plan's going to be and then decide on the timelines, which are often dictated by suppliers, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to change your HR system if it's only going <laughs> to, you know, if your contract is still for two years. So yeah, it, it really goes very operational. Um, but that's why, you know, having a plan and, and really helps. And then often as part of the organization, unfortunately, in many cases, you also have synergies targets that you have to achieve. So defining a plan for that is also often a big part of your integration plan. Is it, are we going to cut headcount that's open? Are we not going to replace people as they leave? So really making a game plan to make sure that what you said you were going to do in your business case of the acquisition actually happens. Yeah. That's also a difficulty with the organizational design, right? How can we come up with like a good structure without immediately linking it to specific people? Man, Carol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need to get the emotion out. Yes, I, I, know always, it. I, know. I, I only want to see boxes and arrows and functions or roles, but no names stick to it. But it's so, I mean, it's, it's emotion, of course. It's so hard. And I find it harder in scale-ups oh, because yeah. often they're so attached to the people. It's founder-led. They've often defined often. the structure yeah. yeah, because of the people, right? Yeah. They, they didn't yeah. define the structure because that's what they thought they needed. It was like, oh, this person wants to be promoted. Or while in larger corporation, there's more this slightly distant yeah. view yeah. on it. Um, totally different. I mean, there's always exceptions. Yeah. But yeah, that that I would say is one of the biggest challenges and yeah. The politics. Yeah, and definitely not something you can have on day one. It takes time to no. uh, to get yeah. that right. Yeah. Yeah. So what I would often do is on day one, just have... So in an ideal world, you would have the owner of the company transitioning into the new organization, even if it is for a year, two years, three years. And the easiest way is to just have that person report to the CEO and not touch the levels in their need until you've had time to talk to people, assess the business, define the priorities, and then have... The exercise because otherwise it will be very hard to explain to people that there's no bias or prejudice because they'll be like, so you decided on my future based on a spreadsheet? You didn't even talk to me. Um, and so I would yeah. therefore avoid not doing it from day one, but yeah, spend some time doing talent reviews and stuff before moving into that. For the listener, if you have any people and culture related questions that have to do with your work for a startup or a scale-up, let us know so we can address it in the podcast. It can be a question for us or for our podcast guest. Send us a DM via LinkedIn or an email to info at peoplemasterminds.com. Okay, Ness, we have five statements for you and you can only reply with agree or disagree. And I'm going to give you the first one. Getting everyone on the same benefit plan after an M&A is a costly dream that will never come true. Don't agree. M&As always make employees insecure. Don't agree. A culture match between both companies is more important than the strategic alignment. No, don't agree. 
Withholding information about an upcoming merger or acquisition from employees until the last possible moment is ethical if it protects the deal. Correct. Agree. The effectiveness of a merger or acquisition can be accurately assessed within the first six months post-integration. Disagree. If you could pick just one, which statement would you like to comment on? I think the strategic rationale maybe in culture. Go ahead. Because sometimes the strategic rationale is we want to buy the company and not to be brutal, but sometimes people still buy the company with the people because it's easier, but they don't necessarily want the people. And so in that case, the culture piece will not be as important as the strategic rationale for the deal. So there are cases where that is not important. When if you, if it's a people business you're buying, like a consulting business, then in that case, yes, it would be very important. The culture piece would be more important. Um, but I've seen cases where where it wasn't. So. so I have two last questions. What is your biggest lesson learned and the best tip you have for listeners when they are involved in an m and I think the first one is doing, you know, this right with respect and care for people is not easy. And it requires a lot of work and effort from, from all parties involved. So I think it's important that people go into this trying to do the right thing. Um, I see often companies waiting a long time to start with integration. And I think that is a mistake unless it's a strategic decision to keep it separate. Um, I think the faster you can do it, the quicker you can support people through that transition period mm-hmm. and kind mm-hmm. of go back to the business as usual. Um, I've done like over 30 acquisitions. There's not one approach for all of them. So what worked for one is not necessarily going to work for another. So really be ready to adapt your plan yeah. to the yeah. situation is is another one. Not making culture a priority, I think is a big mistake. Um, especially if it's a company that has gone through many acquisitions over the years. That, yeah, is a serious red flag. And I would say the biggest tip I would share with anyone is be humble when you are in this process or working in in a deal. Don't make assumptions. Uh, Keep an open mind, listen, and do what's best for the organization, not you. Because often you see much more politics taking place. And I think it's very important to do what's best for the organization and not what's best for you and your job. Um, And yeah, just be okay to question your ways of working and willing to change. Um, also as an acquirer. Yeah, 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 definitely on, on the acquirer side, for sure. And I think don't underestimate the impact of meeting people over food and drinks. Yeah, if I could put a specific budget in integration for social events, that is the best thing you can do. Again, people trust people, not corporate flights. <laughs> <laughs> It definitely helps. Well, Ness, thank you so much. We have so much more to discuss about integration plans and benefits, etc. So I think we should invite you for a second podcast. But oh, many wow. thanks for uh, <laughs> for joining us today. Um, picking your brain was really, really good. Yeah, same. Thank you so much for the conversation. Usually you're in this all the time and like just talking about it and structuring it was, was very helpful for me as well. <laughs> yeah, we're sure that uh, you inspired many listeners. So thanks a lot and good luck with your lag. 
Thank you. <laughs> Don't, break, Don't break a leg anymore, please. please. And for the listeners, if you want to get the best nuggets from the People Masterminds podcast episodes and savvy insights from the people and culture field, head over to peoplemasterminds.com slash brainbites and subscribe to our Brainbites. Once you're in the loop, you'll get them automatically in your inbox. If you enjoyed listening, then please rate this episode in your favorite podcast app and subscribe yourself if you haven't already. Then you'll stay up to date with the latest episodes and more people will be able to find us. Thank you for listening. Until the next one.